Hey church, my name is Jason, one of the elders at Church in the Square. Let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 will be our primary text today. Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, as we come to our 20th installment, 20th week in the book of Romans. Once again, by God's grace, it will be good news for our souls, no matter what your week has been like, God has a um, eternally beautiful and powerful way of speaking to us individually and corporately in the midst of the sorrows and celebrations uh, of life. And, and, and just sort of by way of summary of considering where we have been thus far, Paul began Romans by introducing himself, that he is an apostle and a slave or servant of God, And then he introduces us to Christ in particular, and then the gospel in general, the good news of Jesus, that is the righteousness of God and the power of God revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. From there, we move to a consideration of God's wrath, that on the day of wrath, uh, God, God's um, judgment against sin would come against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of, of men and women who suppress the truth. And if you remember, Paul is writing to both Jews and Gentiles. So that's, that's Jews, the ancient people of God, as well as to a, a catch-all word of every other nation or the nations, the Gentiles, those who have become followers of Jesus in the city of Rome, about 57 AD. This is Paul's primary audience. He, he is writing to disciple them in the things of God, to be sure, and yet he has a particular desire to actuate or activate them toward unity and mission because Paul is desiring to go to Spain and he wants the Roman Christians to support him, be unified with him, and to help see the gospel continue in this missional effort to Spain. And when we get to chapter 2, Paul has seemed, if, if you remember at the very beginning of chapter 2, to have anticipated the sort of Jewish mindset or the response to a collection of sins and indiscretions or ungodliness at the end of chapter one. He's anticipating what the Jewish listener, what the Jewish reader has in mind. He, he lists these various sins like, like murder and covetousness and slander and so on. The sins of which the Jews likely began to assume that these were things that only the Gentiles were guilty of. This is at least the story they were telling themselves. And so Paul tells them at the beginning of chapter two that no, they are guilty, that the Jews are just as guilty. And they're guilty for a couple of reasons. One, they are guilty because they too have sinned in these ways, but much more so these Jewish readers and listeners are guilty because they are being judgmental. Not only have they committed the same sinful acts, but they have now judged their Gentile brothers and sisters because they believe that they were the only sinners to do such evil things. Paul condemns these Jewish readers, and he does so severely. And this is where we have been thus far in Romans. And Paul is now uh, settling in a little bit here in this idea of judgment. He, he's settling in so that that not only his first century readers, but now we, by inspiration and power of the Holy Spirit, get to hear God speak to you, hear God speak 
To me, Church in the Square 2020 in the middle of a pandemic amidst a fresh racial reckoning in our country, in the deep throes of a contentious political season, perhaps one of the most contentious in recent memory, God in all of that is speaking to us about judgment. He is speaking to you about judgment, my brother, my sister. He is speaking to me about judgment. And he is speaking to us also about judgmentalism, about how we have a tendency to act as though we are the judge. And then Paul gives us this course correction, giving us a picture of God that he alone is sufficient. He alone is fully authoritative as the one true judge. We've been learning that judgmentalism comes from first believing that we are above judgment ourselves, that we're special. We, we each have different tendencies of believing so. In fact, even to deny that is a way of sort of distancing yourself from others and supposing that you are not guilty of a particular kind of sin for which then you can likely and easily judge someone else. I, I do this myself. In fact, often we, we judge people for doing the exact same things that we do. This, in many respects, is how we are like Paul's first Jewish readers. Therefore, when, when we hear that God shows no partiality, that he treats no one as if they are special or uniquely different in and of themselves, and that God's judgment rightly falls on those who are judgmental, and we read in that you and me, we, we are caught up in that, in our sinful condition. So, so in all of this, this is an important wake-up call for us as the church. And today, when we come to verses 12 and 13, Paul will keep this theme of judgment in mind, in particular as we consider consequence and reward and the unique nature of sin and the law and how it is only through Christ that we fully understand and come to terms, if you will, with both. So with that being said, let's look at Romans chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. These are the very words of God. And we say thanks be to God. Church, pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you as always. We get to come to your word. We, we have a collection of words here that first and foremost reveal your character your nature, your truth, your beauty to us. And so we just say thank you. Thank you that we don't have to go to social media to figure out which way is up. Thank you that we don't have to listen to a particular human pundit or, or news outlet ultimately to find out the ultimate truth of things. We don't have to look to government. We don't have to look to our own minds and our own hearts and our own invisible inclinations. We get to go to your word first and foremost to be grounded in the reality of you, our God. So help us today in that. As we are pulled and drawn in so many different ways, I pray that you would settle our souls in the brilliance and power and gift of your word. I pray that for myself. I need that. I need that reminder. I need to be grounded in your word. I pray that for my sisters. I pray that for my brothers. Would you ground them today in your word? That, that more so today, we would begin to develop our thoughts, our thinkings, our patterns of loving, first and foremost, as responses to your nature from your word, 
not responses to our situation or condition or someone else, Father, but that we would be so grounded. We would begin to think your thoughts. We would begin to love the things that you love. We would begin to order our lives around you as the very center of our lives. So so help us in this today, God. We're going to confront sin. We're going to confront disappointment in this. We're, we're going to learn together. And, and I, so I pray, God, that as, we, that as we learn, we'd worship you. As we are confronted with sin, we would confess it and worship you. As we are built up in righteousness, that, that, that's, the, that's the aim of your word, to build us up in righteousness, to give us right thinking that we might live rightly as a result. So we, we pray, Father, that you would shape us, you'd teach us, you'd correct us that it would be for your glory and our good. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. So the apostle has already established that on the day of wrath that he spoke about in verse five, God's forbearance and his patience with sin will run out. And when it, when it does run out, his wrath will be upon, as, as we've learned, all ungodliness and unrighteousness. This is both really encouraging and really terrifying. What do I mean? Well, the Christian should be sober-minded as it relates to the return of Christ and the setting to rights of all things. We are encouraged then because there is incredible injustice in our world from which followers of Jesus' trust will be Uh, met with righteous vindication. We trust that when Jesus returns, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In, In other words, anything that is moved in opposition to his power, his authority, his rule, his reign, anything that is moved in opposition to that will be brought low, contrite before the Savior, the King of the universe. It will be right. All shall be well. Let, let, let me be clear about this. To be a Christian is to trust that, that in particular, in one situation that has gripped many of our hearts, that the nature and amount of justice that Brianna Taylor, by way of an example, receives on this side of eternity, that God will ultimately make things right. That the Christian believes this. And and, and we're not moved into to laziness or, or just saying God will make that right someday. We are actually stirred and moved with empathy and compassion and, and joy and righteous indignation that this does not lead to passivity in the face of injustice, but it leads to eagerness and laboring to see justice realized as soon as possible. And yet we are always doing that work, no matter how much, whatever modicum of justice we see in this age, we trust that Jesus will bring the fullness of justice on the day of wrath, even in particular situations, particular situations as well as in general. So so this, this is why we are actually encouraged by the day of the Lord, by the day of wrath, where God will set things to rights. But the Christian is also has, has this understanding that injustice is not just a problem that is out in the world, but it's right here in our hearts. Evil and injustice are in my heart and they are in your, in your heart as well. Therefore, the remaking of the world through Christ is not simply that justice will be exacted upon other people and broken systems, but in our hearts as well. 
So let, let me be clear about this also. When we, when we see racism and, and violence and abuses of power, we do not merely decry the public representations of these evils. We repent because these evils and injustices are embedded by sin and my brokenness in our hearts. And that's terrifying because that injustice will also be met with the righteous wrath of God on the day of his wrath. This is what Paul is is taking up in chapter two, making clear that it is for the Jew and the Gentile. No one's safe. And no one will be left out of this celebration in Christ. Romans chapter two, verse 12. This is the context now with which we come into verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. I'd like to make a case based on um, what we're going to be looking at, that, that sin is both legal and relational. And to, to understand that from this, this passage, we, we first need to hear what Paul has just said. As in previous verses, Paul is speaking in a universal sense. Notice at the very beginning of the verse, he says, for all who have sinned. But also there's two specific groups of people that he has in mind. So he has this sort of comprehensive and universal view. And yet he says Jews and Gentiles. And before we look at those two groups, we we need to get an understanding of sin. Because sin is one of these ideas, one of these common words that we throw around sort of in Christian parlance that we often presume that we understand, but we often do not at all. And so it's helpful to take up the consideration, our understanding of sin, a little bit deeper investigation. And so in theology, uh, the study of sin is known as hamartiology. It comes from a Greek word, hamartano. John writes directly about sin in 1 John 3, verses 4 and six, four through 6. Let's turn there. Turn to the right in your Bibles all the way to 1 John. If you get to Revelation, like I just did, go back to the left. You go back through Jude, and then uh, 3rd, 2nd, and then 1 John. 1 John 3, 4 through 6. Here's what God's word has to say specifically about sin. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin no one who aids in him who rather abides in him forgive me uh, keeps on sinning no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him so so from paul as well as john here i, w- I want to make the case uh, based on the like comprehensive view of martiology this understanding of sin as it's consistently taught through the scriptures that sin is both legal or moral and relational. Did you notice? Initially, John says there in 1 John 3 that, that sin is lawlessness. Sin is living as if there is no great moral standard or righteous requirement laid out for our lives by an ultimate authority who, who is over us. More particularly, sin is not submitting to God and him supremely as our authority, breaking his rules, living outside of his order, his will, his desire, his affection, his, his, his grace to us. But secondly, John says 
that, that sin is not abiding in God, that, that sin takes place when we are not rested, anchored, and found within relationship with him. And that's relational. Sin is taking on, or taking rather, other loves and enjoying the company of other lovers. It's not merely an action or an activity or a thought. It's a fracturing of a relationship. Sin is divine infidelity. Spiritual infidelity. Sin is betraying a relationship which has been sealed by generosity and covenant and self-sacrifice and love. So sin is legal and relational. We, we know this experientially too, don't we? I, I mean, I know, I know I do. When I sinned against my son just a couple of weeks ago, not wasn't the last time, it was just one that came to mind. When I, when I sinned against my son a couple of weeks ago, I raised my voice, I lost my patience, and then I used my authority for my sake and not his. Specifically, I gave him too strict a punishment for his level of disobedience because I was angry. I was angry at him. And so instead of giving him what what he deserved, what was righteous and just and fair, I emotionally pushed upon him what made me feel better, what made me feel like I was gaining back control. And so I had to ask for his forgiveness. Something that is really challenging to learn as a parent. And I'm still learning regularly what it means to seek my child's, my children's forgiveness when I've sinned against them. And when I sinned against Micah, I, I didn't simply break some sort of moral, legal, or forensic law. He wouldn't have known that. What, what he was even sensing, though, was that I wounded our trust. See, he trusts daddy to care for him and take care of him and to love him and to extend grace towards him and to honor Jesus above all things. He, he, he has to trust that daddy will do that and that when, when I exert my authority, when I lead with the power that God has entrusted to me as his father, that I would do so in a way that is just and right and good, not, for, not self-seeking, but actually to care for him. See, it was legal and relational. I disobeyed God at a moral level and lost self-control, and I broke or fractured the trust that I had with my son. It was relational. Therefore, on a cosmic scale, sin is breaking God's legal and moral order as well as breaking relational fidelity with him. See, this duality is vital for our understanding of Romans chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says that there are two kinds of people. There are those who sin without the law. This is that relational sense. And those who sin with the law. That's that legal or moral aspect. Let's consider both separately. Paul says there are two, or rather there are those who sinned without the law. What does this mean, to sin without the law? Well, when Paul is speaking about the law, he is speaking specifically about the law given to Moses. This includes, but it's not limited to the Ten Commandments. We, we're speaking about the whole of God's revealed, spoken, and subsequently written will and word in the Old Testament. That's the law. And Gentiles are without the law because they are not part of Israel, the people who directly received the law of God through Moses. So for the Gentile, their sin is without God's revealed, spoken, and written will and word. That means Gentiles are those who have sinned through suppressing 
the truth of God, Paul says, that has been revealed in creation by way of a relationship with creation as creator. That's what Paul said in Romans 1, 19 through 20. So he was setting us up to understand this by chapter two. Look, look back, if you're still in John, go back to the left to Romans chapter one, verse 19 and 20. This is, this is where Paul is anchoring his argument. For what can be known about God is plain to them, he writes, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that they that have been made. So they are without excuse. There's a reality and a relational nature of God that's revealed through creation, which leaves even the Gentiles who did not have the law culpable in their sin. They sinned without the law, yet they still sinned without excuse. Their ignorance doesn't, their ignorance of the law specifically does not protect them from, from consequence because there has been a truth revealed to them and they are not even being obedient to that. Paul also says that there are those who have sinned under the law. And here he's speaking about the Jews. So what does it mean to sin with the law? Well, Paul is speaking about Israel who's received God's revealed, spoken and written will and word through Moses. Therefore, Jews are judged in many ways more severely because they have received clarity legally and relationally about the Lord's require, requirements or his, what he requires of humanity. See, the law of God has brought light to their sinful condition well beyond the revelation through creation. That's Paul's point in Romans 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 20, and also chapter 7, verse 7. Let me, let me read those for us so that we kind of get a picture of the, the, the wider lens that Paul has on this. For by works of the law, chapter 3, verse 20 says, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then, then chapter 7, verse 7, what shall we... What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. The law, God's revealed, spoken, and written will and word reveals sin, specifically the legal aspect of sin. What is right? What is wrong? And so Israel sits under the law and they are without excuse. The law does not protect them from consequence and making them special. It actually reveals Israel's guilt. Here's the point that, that Paul is making here is that with or without the law, everyone has sinned. Everyone has sinned. Gentiles, Jews, you, me. And since Paul has made clear that God is not giving special treatment to the Jewish people simply because they are Jewish, all sin will be judged on that day of wrath that verse 5 introduced us to. Not having the law is not an excuse to sin. Having the law is not a charm guaranteeing the, the staving off of judgment. The big idea then, and please don't miss this, everyone who sins will suffer consequences. Everyone who sins will suffer consequences. And, and yet, even in the middle of this, this, this heavy burden, with or without the law, there's this special grace in all of this. Notice that the Gentile is not judged by the law which they did not receive, nor is the Jew more privileged because they have received the law. They are both 
judged for sin legally and relationally. There, that means that God's judgment is fair and gracious because it is based upon whatever amount of truth and access to knowledge they have received. Or as one scholar put it, people are judged according to the light they have, not according to the light they do not have. You see this? Everyone who sins with respect to the light or understanding they, they have been given is judged accordingly. Why? Because this is part of God's nature. God shows no partiality. He is eternally fair. Therefore, Paul connects this universal expectation with an appeal to obedience and submission to God's word, or more precisely, the law. Look at verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Paul makes further qualification and clarification here. It's, it's not about what you have heard. It's about how you have responded to what you have heard. It's not about what you have heard. It's about how you have responded to what you have heard. And, or another way of putting it, it's not what you know, what you have come to know. It's how you have responded to the knowledge that you have been given. If, if we're familiar with James' writing, then certainly verse 13 is immediately bringing to mind James chapter 1, verse 22 through 25. Here's what he writes. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like or what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. It's important to see the union of Paul and James writing. They're often pitted against one another, but they actually are incredibly harmonious. Both are saying that sin is legal and relational. Sin is the willful neglect or rejection of whatever amount of light God has graciously given an individual concerning his will and his word. At this point, I think it's important to address something that I imagine may be coming to our mind. So a brief sidebar, if you will. Some of us may be hearing all of this and foolishly think to ourselves, great, now I I can and probably should stop listening to sermons, reading my Bible, because the more I know, the more I'll be judged. I wonder if anybody's mind went there. Mine did as I was preparing this sermon, so maybe this is revealing my guilt and not yours. So just walk with me for a second. A couple of things. If you are trying your best, I remember I love you. Please remember I love you. If you are trying your best to not know God and not know his word, you may not be a Christian. This is not how Christians behave. To be in relationship with the God of the universe is not to avoid knowledge and intimacy with him. It is to get to know him as much as possible and to please him as much as we possibly can. I don't mean to be harsh about this, but that makes no sense for anyone who claims the name of Jesus to avoid knowledge of him. And so if that impulse is there, we need to put that to death. Additionally, Most of us in the United States are numbered with the Jews in this context who do have access to the law or God's word. 
So, so let's not get it twisted that, that you have that app on your phone. You have that Bible in, on your bookshelf. You, you have so many different ways. I have so many different ways to access the scriptures. Therefore, we are without excuse. He has given it to us. To be sure, many countries and, and people groups do not have access the way that, that you and I do. And so biblically, we would consider them in this particular case among the Gentiles who are being drawn by God's grace to our creator. God, through his will written on their hearts throughout all of creation, he is wooing those whom he has elected to himself in a myriad of different ways for his glory. See, therefore, we must be very careful to not be relegated to passivity and getting to know God because we think we will be judged more. Sidebar over moving back to the text at hand. All that to say, Paul makes a literary connection between his thought in verse 12 and his thought in verse 13 with that transitional word for. The reason judgment this is what he's saying. The reason that judgment and demise wait for both Jews and Gentiles who persist in sin is because it is doers, not hearers of the law, who are righteous and justified. Another way of considering Paul's lesson here is that through obedience to the law, we both live in righteousness and are justified. It's all connected. And so we do well to understand two things. One, the law gives clarity about obedience or what obedience looks like for us. And secondly, obeying the law actually produces life. So, so the law gives clarity about obedience and obeying the law produces life, righteousness, justification. These, this is what's going on here. So in other words, sin is both legal and relational and so is the law. Sin is both legal and relational and so is the law. First, notice that the law gives clarity about obedience. It makes our legal responsibility, our moral responsibility clear. That's important to know that the Bible is clear and can be understood by anyone in, in theological jargon. This is the perspicuity of scripture, the clarity of scripture. As second century church father Arrhenius said, the entire scriptures, the prophets, and the Gospels can be clearly, unambiguously, and harmoniously understood by all, although all do not believe. Or Gregory the Great, the Bishop of Rome in 590 AD and following, wrote in his commentary on Job, Scripture is like, and he said, a river broad and deep, shallow enough for a lamb to go wading, but deep enough for an elephant to swim. In other words, anyone can understand the Bible. Anyone can understand, and yet no one can exhaust the scriptures. Therefore, when we open the Bible, it is always fresh. When we open the Bible, we can understand God's desires and his law. They are clearly perceived. We don't walk away confused, but we walk away convicted. We may have questions for sure, but we walk away convicted as well. And the law is good. And the law is just. The law is of grace to us in this. Because his law makes plain what is otherwise hidden. What we could not know about God is made plain to us through the scriptures. Without the law, we would not know the specifics and the particularities of what it meant to please and follow and to obey the God of the Bible. His law, therefore, is a kindness to us, church. This is why Jesus did not come to rid us of the law. He came instead to fulfill it. That's what he said in Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. The law gives clarity about obedience. And Jesus himself, the fullest representation of the law obeyed, was perfectly obedient to the law of liberty. Additionally, not only does the law give clarity about obedience, but obeying the law produces life. What this means is that the law cultivates our relationship with God and his word. See, obeying the law leads to flourishing. Notice Paul says that the hearer is not righteous before God, but the doer is justified. That that means that obeying the law nurtures righteousness and a life which lives out the proclamation of being made righteous in Christ. The law of God, his, his word that has been spoken, it has been written, his will is not merely a test. It's a pathway to the good life. This, this point, I think, is less instinctual to us than the previous And so it's less common to us because of our own sinful nature and our cultural context, we have a a common disdain for regulations and authority and believe that they are constricting, that they take away our personhood, they take away our freedoms, and that they don't lead to a good life, they lead to a subservient and even broken life. So let's think about a couple of ways that God's law actually leads to the opposite of our sinful inclination of what what we think, that the law leads to the good life and a good relationship with God. And we'll just take by a couple of examples from the Ten Commandments. See, when we remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, as Exodus 20, verse 8, the fourth commandment tells us to, we are not simply checking off a legal requirement, but we are learning to cease from productivity or believing that we are found in our productivity. Am I preaching to you yet? We are embracing our creatureliness, and surrendering to authority and to the eternal God. This is good for us. See, when we, when we cease on the Sabbath, when we rest, we are learning to trust God. That's what the great teacher Marva Dawn wrote in her book, Keeping the Sabbath Holy. A great benefit, she writes, of Sabbath keeping is that we learn to let God take care of us. Not by becoming passive and lazy, but in the freedom of giving up our feeble attempts to be God in our own lives. And I want to say, when you read Marva Dawn and you read her on this particular commandment, the entirety of her book, you can, you sense you are listening. You are reading a woman who has taken time to allow God to take care of her in the stillness, in the beauty, in the ceasing, in the feasting, as she writes, of the Sabbath. She has enjoyed his presence. So she writes with a kind of command and authority of knowing. See, so you see, obeying the law of the Sabbath, the law of rest, actually produces righteous living within a relationship with God. It's not merely a thing to do. It's a way of becoming. Let's think about another. God instructed his people to not commit adultery. Exodus 20 verse 14. And when Jesus preached on the subject in the Sermon on the Mount, he reframed that commandment around the heart for a particular reason. 
Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, this is not just a rule. Marital faithfulness and safety within the covenant cultivates trust and unity within a marriage. Therefore, I don't just in in my marriage say I won't sleep with somebody else. I won't have an affair and commit adultery. But actually, as Job says, I'm going to make a covenant with my eyes to not look lustfully upon a, a, a woman and to confess those sins when that happens. Because when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Because there's a relationship involved in this commandment. See, obeying the law, not committing adultery, is a law of faithfulness, which produces righteous living within relationship with God and certainly within the relationship of a joyful marriage, cultivating safety, cultivating joy, cultivating togetherness and oneness and intimacy. See, sin is legal and relational, and the law too is legal and relational, moral and relational. In particular, when we are covenanted with God and obedient to the law, we are living righteously and are justified. See, sin breaks rules and destroys relationships. This is merely hearing the law. Obedience submits to rules that are from God and flourishes relationships. This is the doing of the law. And Paul tells us with or without the law, everyone will be judged according to this particular paradigm. And those who only hear will perish and those who do will live in righteousness forever. Both will be judged for how they respond to what they have heard and what they know. It is not the hearer who is righteous, but the doer. Ultimately, what is Paul doing here? In Romans chapter two, verses 12 through 13, he is summarizing our need and our knowledge. Paul is summarizing our need and our knowledge with or without the law, Jew or Gentile, hearer or doer. See, because of sin, we have a legal need. We are judged guilty before God. You are and I am based on however much we know we are guilty before God. But also because of sin, we have a relational need. Intimacy has been lost with the heavenly father. See, we've not, we're not just guilty. We have a broken relationship. Are, are you tracking with me? Not, not only so, but because of the law, we know what innocence looks like. We're given a path of holiness. We're given a pathway of the, of the good life, of the holy life. Because of the law, we, we know then also what a flourishing relationship with the father looks like. So sin shows us our legal and our relational need and the law helps us to know what it looks like to be innocent before God and what it looks like to flourish in intimacy with God. Each aspect, and stay with me, this is so good. Each aspect of of Paul's summary of the human predicament prepares us ultimately to recognize and trust and bow before and worship Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus alone is not, Ever, nor was he ever, he is not, nor was he ever guilty of breaking the law and the legal requirements of the law. He obeyed the law from the eighth day of his purification, from his general commitment to his father's will over and over and over and over again. And this is why 
Jesus could say this in John chapter five. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son of man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. See, even Pilate knew this, knew of the the moral purity and the, the legal perfection if you will, of Jesus Christ. Pilate was the one charged with the role of being judge over Jesus. Not a good position to be in. And despite the incessant shouts of crucifixion of Christ by the crowd, Pilate proclaims the innocence of Christ twice. In John 19, 4 and in verse 6. Here, here, here how the gospel read in John records it. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him, that that's Jesus, out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And then after more shouts, Pilate again, in verse 6 in chapter 19 of John, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The innocence of Jesus, his moral purity under the law, is clearly seen not only by the Father, not only known by Jesus himself, but by those around him, including those in power over him. Jesus' church was innocent. In other words, the law helps us to recognize Jesus as Lord because he does not share our legal need. He is innocent. His innocence then maintains this unmitigated intimacy with the heavenly father. This led the father at the start of Jesus' earthly ministry to announce favor over his son. Matthew 3 verse 17, the father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And perhaps most beautifully, the union of the son and the father the intimacy that they enjoyed is demonstrated in John chapter 17. Jesus prays to the Father on the shore of his crucifixion. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's verse 5 and verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. The intimacy Jesus, the son of God has with the father is beyond comprehension. It was a union since eternity past and henceforth will never be broken. And it is here with this understanding of the nature of Christ, that we see the legal innocence and relational intimacy of Christ that reveals this good news to you and me, guilty and estranged sinners. See, though Jesus was innocent, he took our punishment for our guilt on the cross. He suffered and died. Though Jesus was intimately unified with the Father, he endured separation momentarily from his Father on the cross. The Father looked away as the full weight of his wrath was upon the shoulders of his Son. Jesus was innocent. And Jesus had this relational intimacy with his Father. See, sin is legal, it's moral, and it's relational. The law is legal and relational. And my brothers and sisters, so is the gospel. This is such good news that in Christ, we 
We're guilty sinners. We who were guilty sinners have been proclaimed. It has been announced where, where Pilate was saying he is innocent. Now Jesus says to the father, he is innocent. She is innocent. The proclamation that only Jesus deserved is made over you, is made over me, is made over all who are in Christ. And because that proclamation is made over you, my sister and my brother, no amount of guilt and shame can ever hold you because it is a proclamation of the one judge who could ever sit over you. And he proclaims that you are innocent. And not only that, but also you now and I, because of what Jesus prayed and what Jesus has accomplished, you and I are one with the Father, even as the Son and the Father are one. The intimacy that only the Son deserved, that only the Son could comprehend, that only the Son was innocent enough to enjoy. Now you and I, as redeemed and adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God, we get to enjoy that intimacy forever. And this church is what leads to our flourishing. This is good for us. See, because of Christ, our legal need is satisfied. And therefore, we don't respond in laziness. We respond not in entitlement. We respond in obedience every single day. Because of Christ, we are made and proclaimed innocent. We are justified. And we respond living in righteousness moment by moment. Because of Christ, our relational need is satisfied. Intimacy with the Heavenly Father is now enjoyed and cultivated only through Christ. And because of Christ, we enjoy a flourishing and an eternal relationship and union with the Father that begins today. To be sure, all the sins of men and women will be judged. But for those who are in Christ, our salvation, our union, and our innocence before him is never in doubt, is never in question. It's sealed by his gracious Holy Spirit. So may we be a people who respond to that with obedience. Can you even imagine? May we be a people who respond to that with mutual affection, one for another who have been united in this intimate union with Christ, with the heavenly father. Can you even imagine if we became a people who lived within this relationship, within this identity, within this knowledge of who we are, anticipating that this day of wrath was going to come, hidden away in Christ, pursuing obedience, flourishing to see that the least, the last, the lost, the vulnerable, the forgotten, that any who had been a victim in injustice would know that one day all shall be well in Christ. Come to him, therefore, all who are weary and heavy laden. He'll give you rest. He'll proclaim righteousness over you. He'll proclaim innocence over you, all by grace through faith. Heavenly Father, we worship you because there is no one like our God. In Jesus' name, amen.